0: live from the new york stock exchange i'm julia chatterley this is first move and here's your need to know payment made fintech giants global payments and total system services tying up in a 21 billion dollar deal when one's just not quite enough alibaba reportedly looking at a second mega ipo but this time a little closer to home And a face-off with Canada Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg set to defy a parliamentary call to testify on privacy. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move back in action here at the New York Stock Exchange following... The long weekend holiday. We are, of course, in the final week of May now. If you sold in May and went away, then you certainly called the price action. The big question for investors, I think, now is: Do we continue to see the selling pressure hitting in June? Let me give you a look at the futures right now. The message is no. Actually, we're pretty flat, but we did lose ground last week, so some consolidation perhaps makes sense. Particularly, of course, seeing pressure in the tech sector and those chip names. The Dow currently facing its worst losing streak since 2011 down for five weeks in a row now it's difficult to make a case here for stocks being oversold with so much uncertainty on trade remaining we'll debate that later in the show maybe it's worth having a look at the message that the bond markets are selling us right now we closed out the week last week with 10 year bond yields in the united states at their lowest level since 2017 that was after some pretty weak u.s manufacturing data if you remember the survey data coming in weaker for now take a look at what's going on as well because we've got u.s yields down in the session again today it's going to be important i think to see if that flight to safety the flight to quality that we've seen in bond yields continues this week key economic data to watch the second reading on GDP for the first quarter in the United States and inflation on Friday, a couple of key indicators. For now, let me give you a look at what we're seeing in Europe. If you remember, we were talking about Italy yesterday in light of the uh, Italian uh, result in the EU referendum, the EU elections. Uh, My apologies. What we're seeing right now is uh, Italian stocks down more than 1%, bond yields also higher. The Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini of the League party had success in that election. He's now raising fears of another spending showdown in the EU. He confirmed that Italy faces a 3 billion euro fine for overspending. Salvini has said that he's not concerned about breaking those deficit spending targets. Former Italian Prime Minister Matteo Mario Monti said to me yesterday that investors need to watch the action rather than the rhetoric, pragmatism will perhaps play out here in deal-making with the EU. We shall see. For now, let's get to the drivers because we've got some other deal-making going on, and this time in the fintech space. Fintech giants' global payments making a pretty large payment of its own, acquiring total system services for more than $20 billion. Matt Egan joins us now and has been poring over the details. An increasingly cashless society we continue to see these big fintech deals. Talk us through this one. What does this create, the type of these two?
1: There's no doubt there's been a uh, flurry of deal-making in the payment space as a result of all of this innovation and disruption that the industry is facing. So the latest deal was announced this morning. Global Payments is acquiring rival Total System Services for $21.5 billion. So it's an all-stock deal, and it rival- it, it values Total System at about a 20% premium to where the company was trading last week before some of the uh, the speculation about a possible deal started to leak out. The deal will create a really big company in this pay- Payment space. It will service uh, three and a half million merchants in 100 countries, 1,300 financial institutions, and it's going to handle. 50 billion transactions a year. Now, the two companies are billing this as a merger of equals, and it's pretty close to that. But technically, what's going to happen is 52% of the new company will be led by Global Payments. The new company will keep the Global Payments name, and it will be led by the Global Payments CEO, Jeff Sloan. So it really is a a takeover. Bigger picture, you know, I I think that it's clear that there's a, a bit of an arms race going on in this space right now. Um, as companies adapt to all of this innovation, to competition from the likes of Square and PayPal, and the fact that you know many people, including many millennials, really just don't have that much cash on hand these days. So in January, there was a, a big deal where fintech company Fiserv went out and acquired uh, First Data for $22 billion. Then we have Fidelity, National Information Services. It went out and acquired WorldPay and a takeover valued at $43 billion, including debt. So clearly all of this consolidation just shows that there's a lot of disruption and no one wants to be left behind.
0: Yeah. And size matters to your point. If you're tackling some of those established names in this sector, the likes of Square, the likes of PayPal, then this consolidation makes sense. You know, one of the other things I was looking at here, Matt, is the sheer quantity and the increase of venture capital money that's being pumped into this space, too. It's so hot right now. Do we see more in this sector?
1: That's right. We, we really have seen just an enormous amount of money from Silicon Valley come into this space because I think that just companies realize there, there is a lot of potential here. Um, you know, everyone does so much of their shopping these days online when they go to stores. They're not using cash. They're using their cards. And so what's happening is we're seeing some of these established players. They suddenly are dealing with all of this competition from the likes of Square, where they're using technology backed by all of this venture capital money. And they are providing uh, real competition to some of the, uh, the establishment players here.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. And later on today, I'll be speaking to the Global Payments CEO, Jeff Sloan. So you can catch that interview on the Express, all the details and more of what the company's plans are going to be. All right, let's move on to our next driver, China's e-commerce giant Alibaba planning a $20 billion Hong Kong listing. It gives domestic mainland investors access to the company as a trade tensions bite. And that could be the key here. Claire Sebastian is on this story for us. More funding, a diversification of funding, but interesting timing for me here, Claire, and the choice to go to Hong Kong here,
2: too.
3: Yeah, Julia, I think uh, it's a practical decision in part. Uh, uh, Alibaba's share price, which had been uh, really on on quite a nice upward trajectory since its massive IPO in New York, has been really buffeted by the trade war. It's down about 13% since its record high last year. So it may want to provide a cushion to that. It may also want to uh, fundraise in a market where people are familiar with its products. And of course, uh, Hong Kong has also relaxed the rule that stopped Alibaba listing there in the first place that allows founders and other important individuals to hold preferential voting rights when it comes to shares. But I think you're right. I think there may be politics at play here as well, especially given the current tensions between the U.S. and China. Don't forget Jack Ma, Alibaba's founder, uh, was recently outed last year as a member of the Chinese Communist Party. So this may be about uh, the company trying to show a bit of loyalty, a bit of patriotism there uh, by listing, not not necessarily on the mainland, but but in, in Hong Kong. Uh, but 20 billion, I just want to give you a bit of context on that. This is going to be, if it does do this, right. a huge IPO uh, compared to some of the other IPOs we've seen in New York last year. It really does them. even Uber at 8.1 billion, so a massive undertaking here. Yeah, it's a huge boon for,
0: for Hong Kong as well, as you said, too, to win such a large IPO. And had the rules been different, perhaps they would have reconsidered the Hong Kong initially rather than coming to the United States here too. But to your point, Jack Ma was one of the first CEOs that came out and was very bearish about the trade war and said this could be a multi-decade problem that we see here. Do we need to make a distinction between the likes of Shanghai, of Beijing, because China is trying to develop its own hub in Shanghai to encourage tech companies to IPO there, because there is a difference between Hong Kong and domestic China for these
3: companies, too. Absolutely. I think for the moment, uh, despite the fact that China is is trying to launch its own what's been called the Chinese Nasdaq, a new uh, tech board at the Shanghai Stock Exchange. It's not really ready yet uh, to accommodate an IPO uh, of this size. You just saw its relative size compared to some of the, the biggest in the U.S. last year. Hong Kong, though, has been attracting some big tech IPOs, the likes of Xiaomi, which raised uh, about four billion last year. So, it, so it's much more of an option when it comes to liquidity uh, for, for this kind of IPO. But you're right. Jack Ma has been extremely vocal on the on the score of the trade war. He called it something that could last 20 years. Last year he said it it was stupid. He's admitted it's it, You know, hurting Alibaba's business that relies on cross-border flows of uh, of products. So I think, uh, you know, the question is: Is he now, by doing this, is the company, you know, this is a tacit admission that there might be a kind of a decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese tech sectors going forward? That this is going to be a protracted battle.
0: Yeah, it's one to watch. I mean, China's largest semiconductor firm said it was withdrawing its U.S. listing just this week. So it's definitely a story to follow. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, moving on to our next driver now. General Motors teaming up with Bechtel to build thousands of electrical vehicle charging stations here in the United States. Peter Valdez-De Pina has this exclusive report. Peter, you and I have talked often about the challenge of electric vehicles and the fear of drivers that you run out of batteries somewhere in the country and have no charging facilities. GM looking to tackle it here.
4: Yes, this is a big concern for them. General Motors is going to come out with 20 more zero emission vehicles over the next few years by 2023. So they have a big interest in making sure that people feel comfortable buying these kinds of cars. Now, this network is not going to be restricted to GM vehicles. People will be able to charge most, maybe not Tesla, but most other uh, electric vehicles uh, at these stations. But it's certainly a smart move for them one thing though is they're looking for outside investors gm and bechtel are looking for outside investors to put money into building out this network but they're both pretty confident that they can find that
0: that's quite fascinating so the two companies are coming together they're going to do this but they're not going to they're not going to pay to do it the argument to your point i guess peter is that everyone needs this technology they don't need it just located on highways it needs to be far broader than that so everyone that's producing electrical vehicles here um has an incentive to invest
4: certainly other companies certainly other car companies might have an incentive to invest power companies might have an incentive to invest uh-huh. i'm just figuring because they're selling the product coming out the other end there are uh, companies that make money running charger networks in in america and some of those companies might want to invest And again, I'm just spinning off ideas here, but maybe even uh, convenience store companies because people are going to need to buy Cokes, Pepsis and hot dogs and stuff while they're waiting to get their car charged. There could be some opportunities there. So but anyway, these companies are fairly confident they'll be able to line up the investment to do this. And they're going to start by the end of this year putting these chargers in the ground.
0: Wow. I hope GM are listening. Fantastic sales job there. I think there's some brilliant ideas. Peter, thank you so much for that. And that full and exclusive report is on the CNN business website. So go take a look. It's a fascinating story. Great job, Peter. Thank you. All right. Let's move on to our next driver. Can a state hold a company responsible for its opioid crisis? That's the question at the heart of a historical trial kicking off right now in Oklahoma. We were talking to you about this yesterday. Johnson & Johnson accused of acting as a drug kingpin. Johnson & Johnson denying those charges, of course. Gene Kassariz is uh, joining us now from Norman, Oklahoma. What we've seen, of course, in this trial already is Tava Pharmaceutical, Purdue Pharma also settling here. Johnson & Johnson now very much in the firing line
2: and in the hot seat here. Why are they still going to trial? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Johnson & Johnson did give CNN a statement saying that they are prepared, they're ready for trial. Opening statements begin very shortly. But they also said that they are very open to a resolution before the trial or during the trial, because there is the uncertainty of what the outcome may be, and then also the cost of litigation. So I think anything is possible. But Johnson is Johnson is saying that these allegations are baseless. But the state of Oklahoma is saying that they have been and are in the midst of an opioid crisis, and that Johnson and Johnson is responsible for that crisis because they procured the raw ingredients, the narcotics that they then sold to the companies that manufactured the opioid medications. The Johnson & Johnson and its subsidiaries also marketed an extended use opioid tablet along with a fentanyl patch. And they say that their, their branding and their publicity, their marketing was misleading that it did not note the risks of opioids to medical professionals, to the public at large, but they touted unsubstantiated benefits of the medication. Uh, Johnson & Johnson says that this is FDA uh, monitored, and they have complied constantly with the FDA. And remember, in 2016, uh, Johnson & Johnson got out of the opioid business. They sold off some of their subsidiaries, and they say that they now actually help in trying to alleviate and conquer the problem of opioid abuse.
0: Yeah, and 1,900 other lawsuits around the country so important it seems to uh, to continue to fight this. Jean, thank you so much for that. Jean Casares there in Norman, Oklahoma, watching that story for us. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. European leaders are in Brussels for meetings in the wake of parliamentary elections this weekend. On the agenda, filling the top jobs at key institutions, including the European Central Bank. They also need to decide who will run the bloc's executive for the next five years. The current European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker's term expires this year. Germany welcomes American companies with open arms. That was the message from German Chancellor Angela Merkel in her first in-depth interview, exclusive interview with an American network. Mrs Merkel spoke to Christian Amanpour about a wide range of topics, including the U.S. President's threat to impose tariffs on EU cars.
5: What's your reaction to German cars being considered a national security threat to the United States? Well, I take note of this. Then, of course, we build our case. I think it's right and good that we have a mandate from the European Union for trade talks with the American government. Germany will hold these talks very seriously. And my argument, of course, is that German cars are not built only in Germany. That, for example, with the BMW, their biggest plant is in South Carolina. This means Germany has much more direct investments taken out by German companies in America than the reverse, American companies investing here. So, I think we should look at these issues together, that namely American jobs, American places of training, have to be secured as well. And then goods can be transported from there to the rest of the world. Further, I think we should underlined that also from the German side, we are open to all American companies. Maybe many SMEs don't know that you can trade with us as well. So I invite all American businesses to take a closer look at German markets. We are open and welcoming everyone with open arms. And you can see the full interview
0: with German Chancellor Angela Merkel coming up on Arm Poor That's tonight at 6 p.m. in London, 1 p.m. here in New York, only on CNN. In Japan, two people, including a 12-year-old girl, have been killed in a stabbing the country's prime minister has called heartbreaking. 16 other children were injured when a man attacked a crowd near a park in the city of Kawasaki. Police say the attacker was detained but died from a self-inflicted wound. Another climber has died on Mount Everest, bringing this year's death toll to 11. The latest to be confirmed is an American lawyer who was an experienced climber. The alarming number of deaths has raised concerns that the mountain is overcrowded and that too many adventurers aren't properly prepared for the hardship of climbing up and down the world's highest peak. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but still to come, throwing the book at Mark Zuckerberg, why Facebook's two two biggest names could be charged with contempt in Canada. And uh, taking robotics up a step, Ford unveils Digit, a delivery robot that can physically climb stairs. We'll have all the details. Stay with us on First Move. Welcome back to the first move from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. A pretty cautious start this morning. Remember, following the long weekend, a lot of data to come later on in the week. Inflation, of course, and the second reading of U.S. GDP. So we'll watch and wait for that. Stocks are on track, though, for their first losing month of 2019. But losses have not been all that major in aggregate since the trade talks broke down. Just to give you some perspective, the Dow off 3.5%, the S&P down 4 the NASDAQ. The tech sector and those stocks most sensitive, of course, to China, down some six and a half percent. Also, keeping an eye on the auto sector again today. Shares of Renault and Fiat Chrysler, adding to Monday's gains. Over in the European session, the companies are in merger talks, and we're talking a 35 billion dollar deal that would create the world's third largest car company. All right, let's talk through what we're seeing right now and thinking. Phil Campbell is asset allocation strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management, and he joins us now. Phil.
6: Good morning. Great. Happy summer.
0: Happy summer officially <laughs> um can investors be happy this summer though in light yes. of broader trade uncertainty here there's <laughs> hopes for a trade deal and now kind of you yeah, been dashed
6: out. a little bit so they were really happy on may 3rd because yes. everything was priced to perfection you had a really nice dovish shift from the fed earlier this year you had a march towards trade peace and you had a really a market that was short so people were kind of coming back into the market, it wasn't, the pain trade was really higher equity markets. You take trade out. That doesn't mean everything goes back to flat. It Just means you pull back by three to five percent, that's what we're seeing in May. Here's a couple of big picture themes we're looking at. First off, we believe this is a really strong political issue for the Trump administration. The second that it starts to slip into an economic issue, where the consumer pulls back, where GDP rates get close to zero. I don't think Trump is going to have as strong of a hand as he does right now because he's got economics on his side.
0: It's a great point to make. I mean, we've got consumer confidence right yeah. now at 15-year highs, right. according to the mm-hmm. data. We also had a really strong, in terms of magnitude, yeah. Q1 GDP reading. Yeah, you, can, yeah. you can caution whether that was a net export effect yeah. and an inventory build, which perhaps could filter away. But you're kind of arguing that the data here emboldened the president to take the stance he did. Yeah, that's
6: right, and that's exactly what happened in the middle Last year when trade started to pick up. We it had a four percent GDP rate in the second quarter, three yeah. percent in the third quarter, and trade became an issue. The big difference now though, Julia? The Fed. Mm. Yes. So in December there Patience. Was, in December there was trade peace. Yeah. Okay? And the equity market from December first to Christmas Eve, as we all know, sold off by fifteen percent because of the Fed. So that's the big difference this year. So
0: you're arguing actually that For now, for investors, Mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve and their patient stance is actually way more important than trade battles. Than
6: trade, that's right. Because I think the Fed drives the American psyche, the 10-year Treasury, a lot more than trade does. Trade is headline and it's really sensational to talk about. We believe it's more of a political than an economic one, and the really high bar for the Fed to do anything is a really encouraging financial condition environment to take some risk, not only in equities, but also in high yielding securities as investors kind of wait and see what happens next. You want to get paid to wait.
0: So you said, you know, three and a half, four percent. For the Nasdaq, we're talking some six, six and a half percent. But within that, some of those individual names have been Mm -hmm. pretty heavily hammered, like the chip stocks and those most sensitive to China. You're saying the bad news is in the price, and actually if we do manage to see some kind of peace agreed on the yeah. trade front, then actually that's a reason for investors perhaps yeah. to, to get back involved. Sure.
6: I think if that were to happen, Julie, and we're not counting up, we're not holding our breath no. for it, but if that were to happen, yeah, the semiconductor in tech, which has been ground zero the past couple of weeks, yeah. is going to see the sharpest snapback. But that's not something that we're really counting on. What we're counting on here? Is accommodative financial conditions, the ability to take risk in US large cap, and then go get paid to wait and things like high yield credit.
0: What is the bond market telling me mm. right now?
6: The bond market, if you look at if you're a, if a pessimist or an optimist, right? <laughs> yeah. If you're an optimist, it's telling you the financial conditions are really easy. Yeah. Mortgage rates are incredibly accommodative. The housing market has done really well this year versus last year when people were calling for a 4% tenure note. We're at 2.3 this morning. The pessimist is going to say the curve is really flat, and the bond market is telling it's you something worried. sinister, yes. but it's not a recessionary predictor right now because the consumer is just so healthy.
0: Okay, so you made a call on emerging markets yeah. and you were underweight and you went neutral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking right now in aggregate? Where should investors be putting money in? How are you viewing emerging markets yeah. given all those factors in So we're not as
6: overweight as we were earlier in the year, yes. okay? When we had really accommodated financial conditions everywhere. However, we're not panicking, okay? There's no panic setting in an emerging market. We're not taking our exposure to zero. We have about index weighting in our portfolio. Um, and the secret there is China also has stimulus, right? So total social financing, reserve requirement ratios. They have what it takes to keep their economy afloat, and we don't think a global recession is new. So in that environment, you keep an index waiting in EM. Don't panic in EM, but we're not as overweight as we were earlier this year. So
0: you're a voice of calm. Trying I mean, to be, A d- deal of uncertainty <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, trying to be. Oh, right. Very quickly, are investors yeah. nervous here, or are they... Sort of listening and absorbing what you're saying. So
6: investors are behaviorally nervous all the time. Yes. But the big difference between this year and last, they're not as long the equity market as they were. Right. I remember last year, everybody was coming in synchronized, coordinated global growth. That wasn't the theme this year. A little bit more Coming closer. in this year, everyone was overweight cash. So very, very different from positioning. So less nervous from that perspective.
0: My first boss in financial markets used to say to me, whenever you get comfortable, panic. <laughs> good thing to remember, Phil. Great to have you on. Okay. As always, Thank Phil comfortable there. We're counting down to the market open this morning. Plenty more to come on First moves. Stay with us. You're with CNN. ring of the opening bell here at the new york stock exchange but certainly some enthusiasm here this morning what we are seeing though is a pretty flat open this morning On this holiday-shortened trading week, it is a Tuesday, of course, seeing a bit of a bounce for tech stocks here too. Those, as we've been discussing on the show, coming under most pressure in the last couple of weeks or so of trading. Key economic data to watch as well. U.S. inflation and that second read of U.S. GDP also coming this week, so plenty to watch. Also, we're keeping an eye, of course, on trade headlines and The U.S. dollar trading against the Chinese yuan, of course. The Chinese state media is quoting the head of the People's Bank of China, saying that he's confident that he can keep that exchange rate stable. But, of course, we're watching that cross, that currency pair, pushing ever closer to at $7 a level critical, seen as a line in the sand here in terms of the talks, most particularly the US very sensitive to that level. Also China injecting fresh liquidity into the banking system. This after the government's first bank takeover in more than two decades on what they've cited as credit risk concerns. That's going to be something to watch and we'll talk about that over the next several sessions too I'm sure. But for now let me give you a look at some of the global movers that we are watching in the session today. As we've discussed already global payments and total system services in focus global payments buying their rival total system services for 21.5 billion dollars. The third big takeover in this industry, the fintech industry this year, the combined company worth roughly 40 billion dollars. So they're describing this deal as a merger of equals. The deal expects to close by the end of 2019. Also keeping an eye on Johnson & Johnson, the U.S. state of Oklahoma accusing the drug maker of fueling the opioid epidemic. They're set to face trial in a multi-billion dollar lawsuit, the state is alleging that Johnson & Johnson, as well as other big pharmaceutical names, downplayed the addictive risks of opioid, opioid drugs. Johnson & Johnson deny any wrongdoing. As we've discussed already on the show, we'll continue to watch that trial as it develops. Fiat Chrysler also being a focus today, Fiat Chrysler, to pursue the $35 billion merger with Renault. The combined company would be capable of producing nearly 9 million vehicles a year, but also aiming for more than $5 billion in annual savings. It would be the world's third largest in the global auto industry, behind Japan's Toyota and Germany's Volkswagen, right now up some 8%. All right, let's talk uh, Facebook now, because uh, Facebook's uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, of course, the CEO, risk being held in contempt of the uh, Canadian Parliament. The site confirming that they plan to defy a subpoena to testify at a privacy hearing this week. Paula Newton joins us now on this story. Paula, based in Canada, of course, in the Canadian Parliament, but there's other nations represented there, some 450 million people in terms of population, actually bigger than the United States, and yet they're not turning up.
7: They are not turning up. And remember, this all started in London when this committee had its first hearings. They heard, Julia, from another Facebook executive. And look, the chair of this committee telling me, look, it wasn't good enough. We all know how, these are his words, Facebook is micromanaged from the top. And that's why they want to hear from uh, Mr. Zuckerberg and Ms. Sandberg themselves. They are, CNN has learned, going to be a no-show. They are sending Canadian representatives, but that's just not good enough for this committee. At issue here, as the chair told me, Julia, it's not about dragging off these executives to Canada and putting them in handcuffs, but it is them blowing off yet one more government committee. And they're saying, look, how do you intend to make changes Uh, at the top with this platform to make sure that election interference doesn't happen again, and crucially, that data collection. What are the privacy practices in place that are going to protect consumers? And Julia, I have to tell you, as I know you keep an eye all morning out for investors to see what's going on here. Remember, this is material to investors. It has to do with the kind of legislation that we may see in several countries, and fines, of course, and what impact that will have on Facebook's uh, business going forward.
0: You raise a great point, Paula, and it's about the UK, it's about Canada, it's about other nations and the idea that the more we see this, perhaps, and the more actually that Facebook executives don't turn up, the more likelihood there is of seeing greater coordination in regulation. Because you get the sense that one country doing this alone is not good enough. But if everybody came together and said, how do we tackle this as an issue going forward, then perhaps Facebook has to be more targeted about their response here.
7: Absolutely. And I think they feel, Facebook, that they're being quite deft in the sense that they're handling it from within and understanding what their response should be. I have to say they have been proactive here in Canada. Julia, we have an election, the federal election in the fall. They've already come up with a template which could be used in other countries, perhaps, to go forward and say, look, we will proactively look at a coordination between these actors on our social media platform. We will look for things that are inauthentic. We will report it. But, you know, we're back at square one, Julia, the committee chair saying me that from Mr. Zuckerberg himself, we have heard so many promises and we have not seen yet the action that we need. And that's at the very heart of this. And it's something that investors should look for as well, because that will mean it will shape the character of the legislation to come in the months that we're going to continue to cover these hearings and cover the different laws around the globe.
0: If regulators don't act, nothing will change because users aren't changing their behaviour and advertisers aren't changing their behaviour. But I won't go down that rabbit hole, Paula, because I talk about this too much. (laughs) Paula Newton, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to actually my favourite story of the day. Mackenzie Bezos donating half her nearly $37 billion fortune to charity after signing the Giving Pledge. It comes just months after finalising her divorce, of course, from Jeff Bezos, uh, the Amazon boss, notably Jeff not signing the pledge so far. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, I love this story, but I also love the justification that she gave for why she's doing this.
8: Tell us more. It's it's a statement, a letter, that's really gonna resonate with so many people. As you said, she's freshly minted as a billionaire. And I'll just read you a little extract of what she said. She said, We each come by the gifts we have to offer by an infinite series of influences and lucky breaks we can never fully understand. In addition to whatever assets life has nurtured in me, I have a disproportionate amount of money to share. And she certainly does. As you said, we value her around $37 billion. She's now newly become the 22nd richest person uh, on the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Uh, and, of course, very recently as well. Now, as opposed, as this pledge, how it works, there are about over 200 individuals and families who have signed up to this. They pledge to give away half or over half of their fortunes sometime either during their life or after. It could be in their will. They can give to any causes they like. There's no set uh, charity or anything. It can be to any causes they see fit to. And it has gained many big names, like Mark Zuckerberg, like Bill Gates. Of course, not her ex-husband, Jeff Bezos, who is the world's richest man.
0: Dun, dun, dun. You've
8: thrown the gauntlet down. <laughs> Jeff Bezos, ball in your court, my friend. Yes, but, you know, and I, I will give him a break here. He does give to charities. For instance, he's got the One Day Fund, which helps homeless people. He's already pledged $2 billion to that, but he hasn't signed this pledge. And I think that's what lots of people will be questioning today. But it's interesting, Julia, lots of other people on this list. And I like to see it as a perhaps a little barometer of where the money is. Plenty of investors. I say this list of the new names that were added today, mostly founders of big investment firms. But we also interestingly have two co-founders of Bitcoin exchanges or digital currency exchanges and three co-founders of digital startups, Twilio, Pinterest and WhatsApp. So There you go, kids. That's what you should be doing with your careers.
0: Anna, my mother would call that a kick up the bottom and a pat on the head at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done. Anna Stewart there. Thank you for that. All right. Coming up on First Move, don't panic. Robots could be coming to your doorstep soon. Helpful robots. Thanks to Ford. We've got the details next. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. The Sports Illustrated brand has been sold by Meredith Corporation to Authentic Brands Group for $110 million. However, in an unusual arrangement, Meredith Corporation will continue to publish the iconic magazine and website. Meanwhile, Authentic Brands will handle things like marketing and business development. Coming to a home near you soon, Ford is experimenting with a package-carrying robot. The automaker says it's testing the walking robot to carry deliveries from its self-driving cars to customers' doorsteps. The robot, called Digit, can reportedly climb steps and walk on uneven terrain. Dr. Ken Washington is the chief technology officer at Ford, and he joins us now from the company's headquarters in Dearborn, Michigan. Great to have you with us, Ken, fantastic. CNN did a feature on this, and I was pretty mesmerized. Talk to me about the work that you're doing on Digit and how it fits with your broader autonomous technology development?
9: Well, it's great to be here. Uh, We are really enjoying the work that we're doing with Agility Robotics. This is a research project to help us understand how might we pair a robot with our self-driving car so that we can complete the task that the customer uh, has requested, which is to have a package delivered to their doorstep. A vehicle can only get to the curb. Our self-driving vehicle will finish the job by handing it off to the robot and the robot would carry the package to the door. There's a lot to do between now and the time when we realize that vision. That's why we're doing this research.
0: (laughs) That was gonna be my next question. How far away are we from Actually seeing this kind of technology in use on a day-to-day basis
9: well it's a little hard to guess but uh, we don't think it's very far but uh, there's still a lot of unanswered questions uh, starting with how would the robot interact with the vehicle That's why the first thing that we tackled in our research with agility robotics was to develop a deploying mechanism so the robot can store itself in the back of the vehicle. And then when the self-driving vehicle arrives, it can deploy itself safely onto the street and then move to the next task, which is carrying the package. But there's still a lot to do. We're hoping to, to, to move this research forward so that by 2021, We might have a good chance of deploying it with that vehicle, but it's just too soon to say that that's going to be the timeline.
0: I mean, that's quite fascinating for me. When you're saying dates like 2021, you've made comments in the past that we have to be very careful when we're talking about autonomous vehicle technology. There's a difference between technology that backs and supports a driver in operating a car and makes their life easier versus operating in an autonomous vehicle technology ecosystem where cars, vehicles, Things are all talking to each other, and I know you're doing work on that in places like Miami and and Washington, D.C. Just explain the difference for me here, because I do think this is incredibly important for our viewers to understand.
9: That's right. The uh, SAE International has defined five levels of autonomy, and we have made it very clear that levels one, two, and three involve a driver that's responsible for the driving task. That driver in levels one, two, and three can be assisted by technology, and we're deploying better and better and more capable assistance technology to the vehicles that our customers buy today and will buy tomorrow. The next two levels, four and five, are full autonomy. Self-driving cars, as we call them, are levels four, and maybe one day level five. Level four being in a controlled region when there is no driver, The car is its own driver. That's why we call it self-driving. Digit and our self-driving cars are designed to work for the level four and level five self-driving vehicle. Because there's no driver, there's no driver to hop out and come around and carry the package to the door. We're hoping that that can be done by a robot.
0: And you're saying that that kind of technology could be on the roads by 2021.
9: It's a possibility. Uh, we're not making a commitment at this time to say that, but that's why we're doing the research. Uh, you know, if you can wind the clock back five years and and the vehicle that we're going to deploy in 2021 was a research project at Ford, and now it's it's a production product. So this is the same kind of thing. We do the research now so that later it can go into production when it's ready but only when it's ready, which is why the research is so important to do, to answer those questions that we need to answer because safety is job one here. You you wanna be able to, to deliver a package safely, efficiently, and you want it to be able to solve a real problem. You don't wanna just deploy robots and other technology for technology's sake. You wanna be able to do it in a way that is actually helping someone meet a need that they have. And so we're testing out, will this meet a need and will it be more efficient than some other mechanism for delivering packages?
0: Very quickly, technology is just one side, regulation and regulations being willing to accept this kind of technology on the streets, to your point about safety, is the other. What kind of conversations are you having both at the state and at the federal level about regulation and, and their comfort level with seeing this in the next two to three years?
9: Well, it's very early in the robotic delivery uh, space, so the conversations with policymakers and regulators haven't even begun yet. Uh, But you've made a really great point, which is that has to be part of the research as well. Just like the vehicle part, the self-driving car that we're scheduled to deploy in 2021 in certain regions uh, has a very active uh, project to work with regulators and policymakers in partnership with, with, our, with our technical partners so that we can know that when we deploy this vehicle in in the cities that we deploy it, that we've, uh, we, we're doing it in a way that meets regulation and it, that it's meets so policy.
0: Exciting. It's so exciting. You're going to come back and talk to us soon, please. Dr. Ken Washington, <laughs> Chief Technology Officer at Ford. Thank you so much for joining us on First Move. All right. We're going to take a quick break. But up next, from electric currents to ocean currents, how IBM's latest venture is making waves in the shipping industry. We'll speak to IBM's head of blockchain to understand how they're putting that technology to great use. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move Blockchain. The word conjures up dark airless rooms and cryptocurrency miners, not the open seas of global commerce, but now it's time to update that image, blockchain is behind the IBM platform developed with the likes of Maersk that tracks 90% of global commerce. That's after two more shipping companies joined the venture just today. Joining me now is Bridget van Krellingen. She is the charge of everything blockchain at IBM and she's the Senior Vice President of IBM Global Industries Clients, Platforms and Blockchain. Wow, that's a title, but great to have you on the show. Explain what Trade Lens
10: is. So Julia, thanks for thanks for having me here it's today. We're to so excited you. that CMA and MSC have joined TradeLens, and yes. TradeLens is a platform for the um, ship the entire shipping supply chain. And what it allows um, to happen is that any participant in the ecosystem, whether you're a shipper, shipper, a carrier, a freight forwarder, can put their shipping records and data on the blockchain and share it immutably. So we take a complex supply chain, and we have shared trusted data the significance of this is quite huge at the moment the World Economic Forum reckons that 20% of the cost of shipping is in document exchange Uh and what we do is we completely reduce that by having it shared and once and
0: done 20% of the cost is simply down to documentation filling it paperwork and you're basically stripping that back and saying it would effectively no longer be needed for me, one of the huge statistics that you brought out, 90% of the estimated $16 trillion in global goods that are moving around the world is done by shipping, 90%, so you're tackling an industry here, not only bringing
10: down costs but also hugely vital to global trade here too. Correct, correct. That's exactly right. 90% of what you use every day is actually shipped. So. The implication of being able to make it more efficient and more yes. inclusive is huge for global trade. <clears throat> the World Economic Forum thinks that around 15% um, more efficiency can arise by tackling the cost issues from paper documentation One and the the manual work th- today.
0: One of the things that we were tracking when the trade war between China and the United States began was how quickly... Um, ships could get to China and if they could do it before the tariffs hit. And it was something that we were watching very closely on the show. This also allows you to track exactly where things are and when at a given point in time. So it also facilitates just understanding where ships are at any given moment. Is that right? That's
10: absolutely correct. It reduces wait times in ports, wait times for immigration clearances because everybody's got the correct and right document and knows where it is at a point in time because of the complex number of participants. And the beauty of this, it's an example of openness that it's good for a whole industry. It's an example of how blockchain is moving beyond the tourism phase to dealing with real complex networks. So this kind of scaling that we're seeing in trade lands for the shipping industry, we're seeing the same thing for food and food safety and food oh. provenance in food trust. That's where we're seeing going next. the same complex <laughs> systems become simple and transparent. So
0: it's something that you can map to other industries and you're doing it with food as well as you mentioned. Yes.
10: One of the reasons IBM invested so early on in creating um, the number one now enterprise blockchain network and technology is because we realize that complex supply chains where there are multiple parties who need to trust each other in a permissions secure and immutable way um, have loads of room for efficiency improvement. So you can think about cross-border finance, uh, um, food trust where we have millions and millions of SKUs for food Um, sustainability, provenance, and safety, Um, diamonds on a blockchain, Um, conflict minerals and metals on a blockchain, all of which the supply chains are made more efficient, more trusted, more economically, viable and better for the consumer. I mean, because one it also shows that the provenance
0: of whatever you buy. Well, right? it's, it, I mean, I know one of the things that you looked at was food poisoning. You could track back to the fish that was originally causing the food poisoning and where it had been shipped to. I mean, the the technology here is Correct. so vital the, the and blockchain pivotal. blockchain
10: with the food um, industry ecosystem, which involves um, firms like Walmart, yes. Albertsons, uh, Nestle, uh, you, you name it. And why they're so excited about it is food recall um, for something that is bad, like romaine lettuce in New York City. Um, Best in class today is Walmart, and it takes them six days and 18 hours. The blockchain, we've run multiple um, goods, whether it's pork or mangoes, and we can recall in two seconds. So wow. think about the impact I, for all of us. Already, never mind crypto. It's all about blockchain, Bridget. Yeah. You've sold me. One in ten of us have food that. poisoning every year. That'll be good
0: to stop there. That's it for the show. You've been watching. Nice first to move. talk to you. Time to go make yours. Thanks for watching.
1: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like.